Who is Jesus? Well, according to some research over the past few years, there is a great divide on who Jesus or what, what, who Jesus is according to Americans and what the Bible teaches who Jesus is. 52% of Americans answered that Jesus was a great teacher, but isn't God, per a survey by Legionnaire Ministries in 2020. According to a Barna study from 2015, 52% of Americans believed, believed that Jesus committed sins like any other person. Yet in that same study, it said that 62% of adults, so 52% said that Jesus sinned, 62% of adults said they'd made a personal commitment to Jesus that was still relevant to their life today. But we must ask ourselves, what Jesus did they commit themselves to? Only 41% of adults, when, when uh, responding to a LifeWay survey in 2021, believed that Jesus existed before being born in Bethlehem. Uh, this hits at the heart of the Trinity, as well as the rest of scriptural teaching, showing that Jesus is eternal. So th throughout our study through the Gospel of Luke that we've been going on for, for quite some time now, I think this is maybe 37-ish, um, uh, you know, when we're looking at how long it's taken, we're, we're in chapter 9 still, moving along as we go here. We've seen this question that Luke kind of has addressed through different people. Who is Jesus? We've seen Herod. It was, who is this man? Who is Jesus? Uh, we've seen the Pharisees, whenever Jesus offered forgiveness of sins. Who is this that can forgive sins? We've seen the disciples do it when he calmed the raging storm. Who is this that controls the, even the wind and the waves? Luke has continued to try to answer this question, who is Jesus? And this question comes up today as well, who is Jesus? Many people today claim to worship Jesus. <clears throat> There's a ton of Christian merchandise out there that people wear that bears the name of Jesus. People sport crosses on their clothing and on their jewelry. They, many political leaders mention the name of Jesus. Some bands, even secular bands, will sing about Jesus. But sadly, most people don't really know who Jesus actually is and what he's done for them. They don't understand his deity. They don't understand his commands and his word. They don't understand the cost of discipleship. Uh, many people are all in when it's an easy road and, and he's going to make your life better and things are going to be great, but then when they find that there is a hard road, that it's a narrow path, they quickly desert the way and say, I don't really want that. So we go through our scripture today. I want you to ask yourself the following question and an answer it honestly. Who do you say that he is? Let's read verse, so we're going to be in Luke chapter 9, verses 18 through 27. It's going to be up here. If you have your Bible with you, you can read along with me as well. Now it happened that as he was praying alone, the disciples were with him, and he asked them, Who do the crowd say that I am? And they answered, John the Baptist, but others say Elijah, and others that one of the prophets of old has risen. Then he said to them, But who do you say that I am? And Peter answered, The Christ of God. And he strictly charged and commanded them to tell this to no one, saying, The Son of Man must suffer many things, and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes, and be killed, and on the third day be raised. And he said to all, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, and take up his cross daily, and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. What does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? Or his soul, as some translations say. For whoever is ashamed of me and my words of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in his glory and the glory of the Father 
and of the holy angels. But I tell you truly, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God. Let us pray. Lord God, thank you so much for the privilege to be able to preach your word. God, I pray that your word comes out, not mine. I pray that you are glorified today, not me. Uh, Lord, it is all about you. I am insignificant and inadequate to preach your word, but God, I thank you that you allow sinful man to preach your word. Uh, God, thank you for, for also allowing us to read your word and to understand it through the Holy Spirit. God, if anyone here does not have your Holy Spirit, the things of God are, scripturally dis- are spiritually discerned, as we'll talk about in a little while. God, I pray that you save their soul, uh, that you draw them to yourself, and that you may save someone listening to this message if they don't know you as their Lord and Savior. For those that do, may you sanctify us. May you make us more like yourself. God, help us to grow throughout this message. Help us to have open hearts, open minds to what your word has for us today, and may it change us from the inside out. We love you, we praise you, and we thank you, Lord. Amen. Today we're going to address three separate questions that, that we need to answer according to Jesus. And, and the first is, have you recognized the Savior? Have you recognized the Savior? I'm going to start by reading verses 18 and 19. Now it happened that as he was praying alone, the disciples were with him, and he asked them, Who do the crowds say that I am? And they answered, John the Baptist, but others say Elijah, and others that one of the prophets of old has risen. Mark lets us know the exact location of this interchange in Mark 8, 27. There's a map up here, a little bubble there, uh, balloon there at Caesarea Philippi. Uh, we were just before this in Bethsaida, which is south, probably 15 to 20 miles south, and now they've moved north um, uh, from the, the Sea of Galilee all the way from uh, Capernaum to Bethsaida and now up to Caesarea Philippi. And here we see Jesus praying before another big event. Jesus does this. We can model this. We need to watch him do this. He's always praying to the Father. He talks. To, we're, we're actually commanded in Scripture to pray continually. But there are times where we've got to be really plugged in, listening to the Father when something big is about to happen. And we see that Jesus is about to see do something big. He's about to ask a very difficult question. We're told that the disciples are with him. We're not told whether they're praying there. I don't know if they're playing paper, rock, scissors. We're, we're not told what they're doing, but, but it just says they're, they're kind of hanging out. They're, they're in the vicinity, and he stops praying for a moment and asks them the first of his two questions, this one being the not-so-hard one. He says, who, does, who do the crowd say that I am? And they answer him, saying, John the Baptist, Elijah, or maybe another prophet has arisen. Obviously, we see that the crowds that were following didn't really truly know who Jesus was. They saw him as a miracle worker, uh, a prophet of some sort, but they didn't really know he was the Son of God, the Messiah. Their preconceived ideas and notions kept them from seeing who Jesus really is. Preconceived ideas. Isn't that a problem today as well, brothers and sisters? Our preconceived ideas sometimes keep us from seeing who Jesus really is. We we see that in our culture a lot. The cultural lens of inclusivity and humanism can quickly airbrush Jesus into being who we want him to be. Airbrushing in photography tries to cover up supposed blemishes that the photographer sees to try to make it a perfect picture. Sadly, many of today's church leaders and so-called believers participate in airbrushing Jesus and his word. And they see the exclusivity of the gospel and the commands of God and the Word of God as blemishes in the Bible, blemishes on Jesus. And so they airbrush them with comments that deny what Jesus has said and who Jesus is and what his commands are. In an effort not to offend the world, they have instead offended God himself. 
They present Jesus as someone unrecognizable in light of his word. They have made him nothing more than an idol that looks a whole lot more like themselves and a whole lot less like the Jesus of the Bible. Moving forward, though, Jesus asks the truly pressing question that is on his mind. Verse 20, Then he said to them, But who do you say that I am? And Peter answered, The Christ of God. We're told in Matthew 16, 17 through 19, that the truth of this was revealed by God to Peter. It wasn't something he just figured out on his own. Uh, we see that spiritually dead persons are unable to discern the things of God, 1 Corinthians 2, 14. But God, being rich in mercy, draws men to himself, despite their sin. Praise be God for, for his kindness to us. In Matthew 16, 17 through 19, Tom would fail us to be able to adequately address this, but as you maybe will be reading the parallels of this, uh, I think it's important to know that the Catholic Church has long taken these, the Scripture out of context. Uh, they've called Peter the rock in which the church was built upon instead of Jesus, who is the rock, the foundation, the cornerstone. And they have wrongly called Peter the first pope. Obviously, as Protestants, we, we disagree with this. We, we disagree with that. Uh, and, and it would take a lot of time to go through that. But this, this false teachings actually went so far as to 1870, the Pope was declared infallible when he speaks ex cathedra, that is, speaking in an authoritative, Pope-like manner. Time would fail to give an adequate response of this false teaching, but the Scriptures clear, clearly do not support this authority and position. Yet, this is not what Luke decides to focus in on. You know, as Matthew mentions this, Luke just goes straight to the answer that Peter gives, and Peter gives the correct answer, the Christ of God. The word Christ is the Greek rendering of the Hebrew title Messiah. So he has called him the Messiah. He has called him the one that the Jewish people had been waiting so long for as their deliverer, their savior. Theologian R. Kent Hughes makes the following assertion. What we think about Jesus is everything. It's everything to us. So who do you say that he is? Obviously, God is still God, despite your opinion. God is still, Jesus is still truly man, truly God, despite whether you believe it to be so. Your beliefs and feelings have no bearing on the truth, despite what our postmodern world likes to say. That what you believe is truth because you believe it, that is not rational and it's not correct. You can believe yourself to be rich. If you don't have any money in your bank account, I'm sorry, you're not. Like, that's how it works. You know, it's, you can believe yourself to be tall. If you're vertically challenged, that's not the case. You know, you can believe yourself to be the professional basketball player. When LeBron James knocks on your face, it's going to be kind of tough for you to really call that. Our world is confused. They think that they can believe something and make it a reality. But yet, the reality is right in their face and shows them that that's not true. And then people begin to lose hope. But there is no quality about your personhood that is more important than what you believe about Jesus Christ. It's your favorite color, your interests, your hobbies, what you're good at, how you look. All those things pale in comparison to what you believe about Jesus. That is the most important thing about you this side of eternity and will be for all eternity. Again, our question from today arises, who do you say that he is? Jesus replies back to Peter in an interesting way in verses 21 through 22. And he strictly charged and commanded them to tell this to no one, saying the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed 
and on the third day be raised. He charges his disciples to, to keep this understanding of his messianic fulfillment quiet for now. Some of you may read this and be confused because we are post-resurrection followers uh, of Christ. And we're told what in Matthew uh, 28, 16 through 20 to do? Go forth and do what? Preach the gospel to everybody. Tell everybody who Jesus is. But as we saw at the beginning of this message, the crowd was clueless. They had no idea who Jesus was. Is he John the Baptist? Is he some prophet of old? Is he Elijah? And so they, had, they didn't have a real great grasp on who Jesus was. The last thing that Jesus wanted was loyal, unregenerate pawns who would come and try to have him take over Rome, which was what they would have wanted to do. They wouldn't have understood that he had to die on the cross first before he came reigning in his second coming. And he wanted to make sure that he had true followers. And he wanted to make sure that he, people didn't only recognize him, but, as the second point comes, that they have responded to the Savior. So number two, have you responded to the Savior? Reading verse 23, And he said to all, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. So after this revealing of his, the coming death on the cross, that his resurrection is well in there, we see two difficult commands that Jesus gives here. The first command in order to follow Christ is that one must deny himself. This is the part of, call, of the call of Christ that keeps most people from becoming a Christian. We've mentioned this before. It's humility. To deny yourself means you're going to put Jesus above yourself. You're going to put even others above yourself. We, we deny ourselves, meaning that we want to, to, to combat sinful behavior. We, don't, we, we want to hate sin. We want to reject our own will on behalf of Christ's will. If his word says something, we do it even if we don't want to. Uh, we, we have to make Christ our number one priority, not our own happiness. We make the joy of Christ, our number one priority. And this call not only encompasses one's conduct, which is definitely a big part of it, but it actually requires an entire giving of one's entire self to the Savior. It's, it's more than just lip service or checking a couple of boxes. The, the cost of discipleship is giving your entire life to Jesus Christ. As if this first call was not hard enough, Jesus takes it a step further. He, he levels it up, as contemporary people will say, uh, the second command in order to follow Christ is that one take up his cross daily. Uh, for us today, the cross is a positive image. It reminds us of the great love that Jesus Christ has shown to us. It, it reminds us that, that he loved us enough that he would die on the cross for our sins, take on the wrath of God, all for us. And it also, when we look at the cross, we think of the resurrection too. You know, we think of the empty tomb. We think of victory. Uh, in, in Protestant churches, you never see Jesus on the cross because Jesus is not on the cross. He will never be on the cross again. When he comes back, he will not come back as a humble servant. He will come back as a reigning king who destroys his enemies and brings about the kingdom of God in its full consummation, as we'll talk about later. Uh, but for us, it's, it's a positive image. People wear cross necklaces, cross hats, cross crosses on everything we you know, the, the church's exterior, we have a cross, we have a cross behind me here. It reminds us of the good, thing, good, good stuff about Christ, what he's done for us. Yet during this time period, when he says cross, people don't see it like this. They're not on the other side of the resurrection, seeing the positivity of the cross. They see it as certain death and execution in the most tortuous way possible known to man at that time. It, it meant being prepared to endure suffering. Now, those who follow Christ must be willing to give everything for him. This even sometimes means 
your life. Although martyrdom, martyrdom is not a universal occurrence in the life of most believers, it is certainly possible for all of us. For most, however, taking up one's cross involves accepting pain and persecution on behalf of Christ. Many have referred to this taking up a cross, though, in a rather superficial way that is not like Jesus said. I, I don't know how many times I say, well, it's just the cross I have to bear for today, which is going to work. Like, that's not the cross. That's not what Jesus is talking about here. Jesus, however, uses this phrase to refer to persecution that occurs in the life of a believer because they follow Jesus Christ. It's not just because you had a hard day. That's not your cross you have to bear. It, it's because someone has persecuted you on behalf of Jesus Christ. This may be being ostracized from a group because of your beliefs. It may be not getting invited to your family function because of your beliefs. It may be losing your job because of your standing for the truth of Scripture. It may be having less advantageous investment strategies because you refuse to bend on your integrity. It may even involve possibly physical harm. Again, there is a cost of discipleship. The gift of eternal life I want to be clear, it's completely free. There, there are no works, there's no money, there's nothing you can do to earn salvation. Jesus paid for that on the cross. There's nothing you can bring to the table to add to what Jesus has done for you. But when you accept this free gift, it means you're no longer your own. 1 Corinthians 6.20 says this, For you were bought with a price. It was a high price, the price of God's only Son. So glorify God in your body. Jesus has paid the ultimate price for your life. Thus, a true follower of Christ should honor and glorify Christ with his or her body and life. Theologian Leon Morris once said, When a man from one of their villages took up a cross and went off with a little band of Roman soldiers, he was on a one-way journey. He would not be back. Uh, those who follow Christ take up their cross, and they're on a one-way journey to give, of the, give up their life. Their life is now Christ's. They carry that cross daily. They pick it up and they carry it. And those who are true believers persevere to the end and they lay it down as they enter eternal life. My friends, if you find yourself living like a chameleon, you, you take it up when you're around some believers and then you lay it down and you go do what you're going to do. You take it up when you're around. Then you go and live in, live in sin the way you want to live. My friends, that's not what a true believer, not how a true believer lives. Yes, true believers in, in Christ stumble. They fall. They drop the cross. They roll around the floor for a little while, but, but God picks them back up, puts the cross back, and helps them to continue walking. And he carries them all along the way. Because we can't really bear it. And that's the beauty of, of the Christian life is God has shown us through the law, through the Old Testament, that we couldn't do it. He, he gave us commands. He gave Israel commands that they could not keep. And so he showed them, you're sinful and you need a Savior. And so for us, we can't obey the, all the commands of God. We can't do everything right. We're going to fall. But when we fully rely on him, he carries us along and he helps us to carry the burden that he's given us. And again, that walking with the Lord is still his work through us. So we've talked about in Ephesians 2, we're saved by grace through faith, not by works. But then we go up verse 10, we do good works, but he does them through us. It's not even our own ability. So again, we still bring nothing to the table, but we need to be willing and able or willing to, to let him work through us. Jesus continues to, to escalate this, these statements in verses 24 through 25. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? 
Verse 24 refers to those who want to live their life for themselves. They, they want to acquire wealth for themselves and not share it with the Lord, not share it with anyone else. They refuse to acknowledge the Lordship of Christ, that, that everything is His, that, that, that we actually bring nothing, we have nothing. They refuse to follow His commands and obey Him. They refuse to follow the plan and will of God for their lives. And they stubbornly make their own plan their life. This is a common teaching in our world today, right? Live for yourself. Have it your way because you're worth it. Yes, we can. All those types of advertisement labels. Yet it is those people that Christ says this about, that they will lose their life. Those who try to hold on to it, actually will, it will be ripped from them. But those who give their lives to Christ truly gain life. They not only gain abundant life on earth, albeit with persecution and heartaches at times, but they gain eternal life with him forever. Jesus moves on to challenge those who seek worldly gains instead of heavenly gains. So what profit is it to gain everything that you can try to acquire on earth and forfeit your soul? Uh, what kind of investment is it to have a few decades of quote-unquote happiness and living life to the full and an eternity in hell? I don't think that's a great investment, my friends. Only a fool lives this way. Jim Elliott was a man who understood what it meant to live for Christ. And he did suffer the ultimate price for following Christ. In Elliot's journal entry from October 28, 1949, before he'd been martyred, this is the quote that is in his journal. He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain that which he cannot lose. Every time I, I, I read that, I'm just like, wow, especially knowing that he ends up being martyred. And so what can we not keep? This life. No one can live forever as far as on earth. No one can become immortal on this side of eternity. This body will decay. It will die. I don't care how much money you have, how much cryo stuff you try to do, and I'm going to freeze myself for a million years. Like, I don't care what you do. You're going to die. No matter how good your doctors are, no matter what that is, we all share that in common. But there, there is so much, so much, something so much better than this life, and that is salvation in Jesus Christ. The cost of discipleship, we've already discussed, but salvation is a free gift of God. Those who repent and turn from their sins and give up this life that you cannot keep anyway, it's going to end no matter what. But when we give it to God and we say, okay, you know, not my will, your will be done, we repent or turn from our sins and live for him, then we're able to live that victorious life like Jim Elliott lived. Yes, he died as a martyr, and that seems so sad. But can you imagine his entrance into eternity? I don't think he was regretting one decision that he made throughout that for the Lord. Elliot asserts, you cannot keep this life anyway. Hebrews 9.27 tells us this, and just as it is appointed for man to die once and after that comes judgment. We're all going to die. We share that in common, but we also share something else in common. We all will face judgment before Jesus Christ. We all will eventually meet our maker. Some of us, though, will be covered by the blood of Christ, and so when we stand in front of Jesus, we get to hear, well done, good and faithful servant. Not because we're good, but because Jesus was that good and faithful servant that laid his life down for us. But I cannot imagine the, the fear that would come before standing in front of the God of this world, or the God, the God of the, the universe, the God who created everything, I have to give an account for your sins without the blood of Christ. I pray that each of you have not only recognized the need for the Savior, but that you've responded to the Savior. The only way for salvation is through Jesus Christ, as Acts 4.12 so 
beautifully puts here. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven among men by which we must be saved. Friends, be sure that you've recognized and responded to the Savior through repentance and faith. And be sure you have not renounced the Savior. That brings us to our third question, a very difficult question, the hardest question for today. Have you renounced the Savior? Verse 26 says this, For whoever is ashamed of me and my words, of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in his glory and the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. A couple of, a couple of weeks ago we mentioned this particular verse. This is a very difficult verse, extremely difficult verse to read. And it's an extremely difficult verse for many churches in our church uh, across America today. Uh, many pastors are ashamed of, of Christ and his teachings. They're ashamed of the word of God. They refuse to preach the whole counsel of Scripture because they are ashamed of the difficult teachings of Christ. Uh, like Peter, they rebuke Christ. They seek to silence his word to the church. They refuse to discuss controversial topics in our culture. They refuse to preach the hard teachings in order to push their own personal agenda and brand. Many pastors refuse to speak on these things because of their image in the community. They refuse to speak on things like this because they want to be known as a certain thing, and they idolize themselves. They refuse to speak out for righteousness and justice and holiness for fear that it might offend someone and diminish their own popularity. And many attenders of churches are no better. They seek churches that preach this way preaching that shows itself ashamed of the word by avoiding it at all costs, especially controversial doctrines. They don't want to hear the difficult passages. They're ashamed of the Bible's view of sexuality, uh, of creation, of biblical view of gender roles. They're ashamed of the, the Bible's teaching on the sanctity of life. And they're ashamed of Jesus' statement of exclusion instead of inclusion in John fourteen six, saying that he is the only way and the only truth and the only life. My friends, may we never be that way here. May we never be ashamed of the gospel and of the word of God. Some, though, hear what I've just said, and they quickly say, well, pastor, I'm not ashamed of Jesus. I talk about Jesus all the time. I wear Jesus shirts. I go to Jesus conferences. I, 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 I love Jesus. I, I just don't feel comfortable talking about some of these Old Testament passages. They, they're kind of offensive at times. And, and some of Paul's letters, they they just seem divisive today. You know, I just, I'm not okay with that. I don't want to really talk about that, but I love Jesus. But did you read the entire verse that we just had? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words. Me and my words. As we saw in our introduction of today's message, many people have experienced or have expressed a commitment to Christ, to Jesus. He is great. I love Jesus. And yet, they don't understand who he really even is, and they're ashamed of him. But being ashamed of the word of God, the words of Christ, which contrary to popular church belief, are not just the ones written in red. I, I know many have taken that, and that is incorrect, but the entire Bible is the word of God, the words of Christ. We understand this from John 1.1. 1, 1. It says this, In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the was God. You get that? The, the Word of God, Christ is the Word. The Word that became flesh. The Word is congruent with Christ. Obviously, Jesus isn't a book, but, but the book of the Bible tells us who Jesus is. It tells us his character. 
tells us what he likes, what he doesn't like, his commands, what he hates. Don't buy the red letter movement that asserts that only what Jesus said and read is what should be read. Let me say that again. Don't buy the red letter movement that asserts that only what Jesus said and read is what should be read. This is demonic. And it is a false teaching. And it needs to die. It needs to be sent to hell along with Satan. It is an awful, awful teaching. Because what it says is if Jesus didn't address it in the red letters, which, let's be honest, the Greek doesn't have the red letters. That's something that was added. So if Jesus didn't directly, he wasn't directly quoted, then it's not what Jesus really thinks. So, so the letters of Paul, are, those are Paul's opinions. Uh, you know, Moses, you know, I know he was, maybe he was homophobic when we looked at the, the book of the law, and so we were there. You know, Paul didn't like women, right? So, so that's what we can't, with gender roles, they, they must not be right, because that's what Paul thinks. My friends, that is false teaching. That is liberal theology, and what that means is to be liberated from the word. What, it's, what it says is, I'm okay with Jesus as long as he looks like me. I'm okay with Jesus as long as he agrees with my politics and he agrees with my culture and my social, social status and what I think is correct. But, you know, I don't, I don't agree with the Jesus of the Bible. My friends, there's only one Jesus, and that is the Jesus of the Bible. We don't conform Jesus to us. We conform ourselves to him. Romans 12 is so clear. Do not conform any longer to the pattern of what? This world. We're to be conformed in the image of Christ, not the opposite. We're not supposed to try to make Jesus look like the world. And so many think that they're doing good. They're, well, if we knock down all these barriers to coming to Christ, then we're going to have a lot more people come to Christ. What Christ are they coming to? Like, that's the problem. It's, yeah, you're right. If you get rid of all the, all the difficult teachings of the Bible... You get rid of the biblical view of sexuality, the biblical view against abortion. You get rid of the, the exclusivity of the gospel and that Jesus isn't the only way now. Of course, everybody's going to say, yeah, that sounds great. Let's go to the country club and let's all hang out and let's worship ourselves and what we want. That's paganism. That's humanism. And of course, you'll have a big church with that. You look like Joel Osteen. You'll have the biggest church in America if you preach that. Become a better you. It's all about you. You are God and people should worship you, not Jesus of the Bible, make him conform Jesus to, your, to, to, to yourself instead of the opposite. The entire Bible is the word of God. Jesus is eternal. In the beginning was God. And if you move forward, let us make man in our own image. We see the Trinity, Genesis 1. Jesus is there when the law comes down and says, you can't have bestiality, you can't do this, you can't do that. That's Jesus is saying those things. It's not... It's God, Jesus, Holy Spirit, one God, triune, is the word of God. Jesus did speak on all of these issues, and he has spoken on all of these issues. People refuse to acknowledge it. Jesus was before Genesis, and Jesus will continue after Revelation, even after the consummation of everything seen. He is the word who became flesh and dwelt among us. Jesus ends with an emphatic event that would confirm his deity, in verse 27. But I tell you truly, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God. There's some debate on what this means. We obviously know it's not the actual second coming of Jesus Christ, also called the parousia, because that is still yet to occur. But we see that the kingdom of God had already come with the coming ministry of Christ. Matthew 4.17 states this, 
From that time, Jesus began to preach, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. So we know that this event occurred sometime in the lifetime of the people that were there. There's three options that people sometimes throw out. The tr- uh, the more, most commonly, there's some other ones. But the transfiguration, the resurrection and ascension, and the falling of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost. I, I seem to, I'll just I'll lean toward the transfiguration, although there's no law against that. You could believe either one of those and be okay. But the transfiguration does follow this. It's what we're going to be talking about next week, going book by book, verse by verse. We kind of see that. And in all three of the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, the transfiguration comes right after the statement. So it makes sense to me, but no, nothing to write home about there. However, that's not the heart of what he's saying here. He's not really talking about, hey, what event is this? The main understanding that we should take from this statement is that the kingdom of God has indeed come. It, it's been inaugurated. It's among us. Yes, it hasn't been consummated. Christ will come and set up his kingdom on earth when he returns, but we can celebrate that God is sovereign and that his promises are sure. Which brings us to our original question of the sermon, who do you say that he is? I pray that you have not renounced to the Savior, meaning that you've rejected his claims of being God and that you've declared that you do not adhere to his word or commands. I pray that you've not tried to conform him to your, to your image so that you could maybe try to follow him. Pray instead you've recognized and responded to the true sacrificial Savior that we learn from the Bible, the one who offers eternal life. I pray that your allegiance to him is unwavering and that your desire is nothing more than to serve him always. And I pray that you are not ashamed of him in front of this world. I pray that you're willing to give up your will and your life for him. He is worthy of all power, glory, honor, praise, and allegiance. Before leaving today, I pray that you fully understand who Christ is according to the scriptures. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you for your, your love and your mercy and your grace, Lord. If there's anyone here that does not know you as their Lord and Savior, I'd love to talk with them about what it means to follow you. It is such an easy thing as far as a child can do it. We just need to humble ourselves, repent of our sins, turn from them, and place our faith and trust in you alone for salvation. But it's so hard for us sometimes to lay down our pride. God, I pray that if you are drawing someone here today, that you save their souls. God, be with us who are believers or our followers. May we not be ashamed of you. May we not be deceived into believing liberal theology that seeks to liberate itself from the pages of Scripture. May we follow your word, no matter how hard or difficult it is, no matter what persecution comes. But may we preach the, the Jesus of the Bible and love the Jesus of the Bible. And love you, Lord. We love you, praise you, and thank you. And amen.